0: And then as you're doing that, uh, if you have your Bible or however you access the scriptures, your iPad, your phone, whatever it is, go ahead and find your way to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we're going to kind of take a a flyover of verses 1 through 28 today. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here and uh, wanted to kind of give you a big kind of the... The ten thousand foot level of where we're at as a church and what we're what we're walking through. So we've been in this series called Resurgence for uh, since actually since September, and we're going through a book of the Bible called the Book of Acts, and we're looking at how the church was originally formed two thousand years ago, and then asking the question, what does that look like for us today? So it's revisiting the past to take hold of the future. And so there's three kind of main rhythms of the journey that we're on. The first one is what you're doing right now. It's called Learn. It's on Sunday mornings. We're learning from the book of Acts what the church is supposed to look like, how we function as followers of Jesus. The second ele- element comes out during the week, and that's called Live. And that's in our community groups or small groups where we actually get to digest even deeper what we're, what we're learning on Sundays from, from the text. And then there's a third rhythm that's called love. And when you came in today, there was, in addition to some other things on your chair, there was a little postcard that said love on it. On the back so- side, it says stories. What that is is that each month we've highlighted a specific thing that we can do practically to help build relationship with people who don't know Jesus so that God might use our relationship with them as a way to demonstrate his love for them. And so part of that is sharing your story of what God has done in your life. Uh, when we use the term evangelism, we all get freaked out because we're like, well, I'm not an evangelist. I don't know enough to, to t- tell people about Jesus. You know plenty. You know your story. You know what God has done in your life. You know the journey that you've been on. And so part of that is that I, and the people that I encounter, they're not wanting to debate me about Christianity or evolution or things like that. Most people want to look at my life and they say, is what you're experiencing real? Is it real? And they want to know from your journey, is God broke broke, has he come through in your life? Has he changed you? Because that's the question most people are asking. So find a way to tell your story and introduce your story to people as you connect with them and build a relationship. That's kind of what we're doing for this month. So this morning we're in Acts chapter 18, and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about the evidence of equality. And, and I, want, I want you to understand as we look into this passage, there's gonna be a story that we really will focus in on towards the end of the passage, verses 24 to 28. And as we do that, I wanted to kind of get some context for what we're going to talk about this morning. And that is this, is that that what you're going to see is a story of, again, Paul doing what he's doing and preaching the gospel and reaching people. But then he has this encounter with uh, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and a wife, who now have connected with a guy named Apollos. And there's something that's embedded in this text that kind of is the kind of the springboard for what I really feel we need to talk about this morning, and that is something that, that creates tension in the church all the time. It actually creates division when it doesn't need to create division, because th- there will be people who land on either side of the topic. But this morning, I want to talk about the, the reality that God has created men and, and women equal, and that includes in their roles in the church. Now, as we, we talk through this this morning, I want you to understand that that there are very scholarly, smart, good people on both sides of what we would say is a debate or discussion or topic. Some believe, as they look at the scriptures, that women have certain roles in the church that do do not include having any place of authority over men or teaching. Others would hold that men and women are equal in their roles, and therefore women can do just what men can do. It's it's more an issue of gifting and calling than it does to do with gender. Uh, I would personally, and our church falls in the second category, But I want you to know, this is something that good people are on both sides, and it is not a place to divide over. What I'm going to talk about today has nothing to do with our salvation. So, because if if you disagree or agree with me, it isn't a matter of whether you're going to hell and I'm going to heaven or vice versa. It's something that, in fact, I have really good friends in our city, other pastors of other churches, that we would disagree on this, but we still partner together because we believe in the gospel. But it's important because, now hear me on this, I did not plan this for Mother's Day. You're like, oh yeah, you did, Pastor John. No, honestly, this series was laid out 10 months ago, and this, this Sunday happened to land on this date, so it, it's not, I'm not designing this to talk about women, but it's really important as we look at this passage today, as we walk through this, that you, you and I approach this with humility, no matter which side you land on. Because part of the challenge is when we come to the scriptures with arrogance, we look for justification. We don't look for us to understand what the Spirit is saying to us. So with that, having a sense of humility when we ad- address an issue like this is very important. Otherwise, you and I will take sides and it becomes division again. And it's not supposed to be divisive. It's actually supposed to be something that brings clarity to us. So in, in the, before we jump into the passage, I wanted to give you some resource. Because I know there's a lot to this topic and we can't cover it all in a Sunday morning. So there's actually, hopefully you read books, I do, I like to read books, and if not, you should become a reader, because it's really good, it's really important, and let me give you three books that I highly recommend that help kind of dive a little deeper into the topic that we're going to go after today. The first one is this, it's called How I Changed My Mind About Women in Leadership, and so these are actually prominent evangelical leaders who over the years, through their in- encounter with the scriptures and their own experience, actually held to the view that women could not teach or hold authority over men and actually change their view because of how what God did in their life. So it's really a very interesting thing to see the different leaders that are in that book. That one's very accessible. This one is a little bit more of a deep dive. This is more of a theological book. It's written by Sarah Sumner, and it has to do with a lot of the, the we'll touch on some today, but a lot of the key passages that people will use To justify that men and women are not equal in the church and that women are actually, cannot do everything men can do in the church. And so it's really very, very well written, very scholarly. If you're the kind of person that says, I can only afford or read one book at a time, then this last book is the one you want to get. It's uh, two views on women in ministry and so it actually has two scholars or groups of scholars who hold to opposing views and they actually share how they theologically come up with their conclusions. It's a really helpful book. So those are three resources because I know I can't I can't get to everything on this top, topic this morning. Otherwise, it would be the worst Mother's Day ever because we would be here forever. So, um, but anyway, with that understanding, go ahead. If you have your Bibles, I want to read verse 24 to 28 of, of Acts chapter 18. The first part of the chapter, we see Paul doing what he always does. He's going to present the gospel. He's engaging in the synagogues. He's engaging people and leaders. And then we get to the end of the chapter, towards the end of the chapter. And there's this has recorded this encounter for us. So he's already encountered... Uh, this husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, and then we get to the verse 24, and it says this. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way, of the, Lord more, or the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing, them, uh, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So in this passage, I want us to start with something that's very important about how we understand what's going on here. The reason we're just looking at these verses and letting this be a springboard is because when Luke wrote his, this, he recorded this for us and was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he actually violates a cultural norm in this text. If you normally read through the Bible, you always see male, male mentioned first and then female. So husband first and then wife second. And earlier in the chapter, that's exactly what it is. It says Aquila and Priscilla. But in this context, when the two of them are sitting down with Apollos and they are both teaching him the way of God more accurately, Luke actually says Priscilla first as a point of priority, which demonstrates that she is at least as active, if not more active than her husband in teaching a man. And I want that to be highlighted. Again, now there's differences of opinion people can interpret differently, but I want you to understand, this is my conclusions that I've come to from studying the scriptures. That is a clear indication that there is something in the text going on more than you and I think there is. There's an intentional inspiration of scripture, every word's inspired, therefore, that if the woman comes first and it's in a teaching context, then other passages that indicate women should not teach men need to be reconsidered and looked at, and we'll talk about it, in their pr- proper Historical context to find out what's really going on in those passages. So, with that understanding this morning, there's three things that I want to talk about in terms of are women and men equal in the church. The first one is this I want to take a look at the textual evidence. So, before we get into the specifics of some different passages that are usually kind of controversial and difficult for us to navigate, I want us to understand in terms of the way that we interpret scripture, it's very important. We have to interpret, which means we understand and then we therefore make a conclusion about what we believe a passage means from study and from reading and from, from the, the movement of the Holy Spirit in our own lives to give us clarity, that we have to interpret Scripture in light of the whole Bible. And the reason I say that is there's a tendency when we find something that we, we find in a passage, we want to take that one passage and build a huge theology around it and explain why this is true or this is false without consulting all of scripture. And the reason this is so important is because the Bible is written in such a way that there's lots of different types of literature throughout the scriptures. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's exhortation or information, and Paul does a lot of information in his epistles when he's writing to people. He does a lot of information, but this is the key. When you read what Paul says as instruction, what gives clarity to it is the narratives in scripture. Does that make sense? So if somebody tells you, here's my instruction, and you say, well, how do you do it? And you point to a story of how somebody did it, that story gives you clarity on the instruction. That's the way the Bible's written. So when Paul makes statements in some of his writings, we have to go to the narratives to try to figure out what is Paul actually saying. So here, let me give you this example. So when we build our whole kind of world on one verse without looking at all the scriptures, we have a tendency to miss the point. So in, in, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, here's an example. Paul says this. He says, be separate from the world. He says, basically he's saying, isolate yourself from the world. Now, if you take that one verse, you can interpret it this way. That means I should never talk to a non-Christian. I should never have dinner with a non-Christian. I should never hang out with people who don't know Jesus. I just completely isolate myself from the world. Seem reasonable? Yeah, it, it does. Unless you interpret that passage in light of the narratives that seem to indicate that can't be solely what Paul's talking about. Because if you go to the Gospel of Mark and all of the Gospels, Jesus, if you remember, Jesus was given a name by people. He was called a friend of sinners. And there's multiple passages where Jesus is sitting down with sinners. He's sitting down with tax collectors. He's sitting down with immoral people. He's having dinner with them. He's hanging out with them. He's eating the food they're eating. And if you take what Paul said in Second Corinthians 6, as you should never associate with the world, then Jesus has violated the very scriptures that he inspired. So, that's not to cause confusion. That means that there is a line that has to be drawn in the way that we connect with the world. Doesn't mean we isolate ourselves. Jesus had the capacity to be with sinners, but not sin. That's the role model that we have, which means I don't join the world in its sin, but I hang out with sinners as a hope that God may reach them through my life. Does that make sense? That's how we have to look at the scriptures. The narratives give the highlight for us what the information is telling us. So with that understanding, so let me kind of walk through some different things of, of women in leadership in the Bible that seem to indicate for us as we look at the whole that maybe there is some, some room for women to actually do what men do in the, in, the, in the church with authority and teaching. So the first thing, Romans chapter 16 verses 1 and 2 will be on the screen. Paul actually calls a woman named Phoebe, he calls her a deaconess, which is the same. It's the female form of the male form for deacon, which in other writings, Paul wrote saying that a deacon is a husband of one wife. So it's a male role, but he's actually giving a female the same title as a male. It says this, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Senecre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of mine and of myself. As well, or patron of many. What is Paul saying? He's actually giving her the same title that men are only given in other contexts. It's really important. Because what Paul's saying personally, if we hold to that women cannot do what men do, then he's violating himself when he's giving the same title to a woman that has only been given to a man. There's another passage in Romans chapter 16 going on in verse 7. There's the, the name Junia, which some will debate is a male form, is a male name. There's plenty of evidence in Greek and in languages to justify male or female, but it most likely could be a female. And in this passage, Paul actually equates Junia with the title of apostle. So he says this, he says, Greet and Angioconus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also <clears throat> excuse me, were in Christ before me. So he's referencing a woman with other, with men in the, count, in the company of a, being apostles. That's significant. Because if, if that's true, that means that Paul is acknowledging where other places it's only talked of as a male, there are females who are carrying the same leadership role as men. <clears throat> Excuse me, going on. You guys remember a few weeks ago, we were in Acts 16. And Acts 16 is this great story where Paul goes to Philippi. And in that story, he encounters a woman named Lydia. And Lydia is gathered with some other women and they're at a place of prayer. They're called God-fearers. They don't know really who Jesus is yet. And then they introduce them to Jesus. They c- become known to know Jesus. Lydia and her whole household. And guess who is the founding member of the church at Philippi? Lydia. In fact, it doesn't even mention her husband in the passage. Lydia is the founding member of the church at Philippi. Second, The other thing is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, women actually prophesy in public in the church in Corinth. So they're actually speaking in public in a church, which some would say is, is forbidden. Another thing that's very significant is in John chapter 20, when Jesus rises from the dead, the first person to encounter the risen Savior is who? It's Mary Magdalene, the first follower of Jesus that knew him, obviously, in his death and now in his resurrection. She's the first one to encounter him, and she's the first one that goes back to the men to tell them Jesus is alive. Why is that significant? Some would say that Jesus never rose from the dead. In fact, that the whole thing is is some concoction of his early followers to save face. And so if that were the case, if you were telling something that wasn't true, the last person in the first century you would want to testify to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead was a woman. Because women were not respected in the first century at all. And so this is significant that in the Gospels it's actually recorded, and some would say this the first person to share the gospel of a risen Savior is who? A woman. That's significant. And in Acts chapter 2, if you were here way at the beginning of the series when we talked about the, the birth of the church and the Holy Spirit was poured out, the prophet Joel, his prophecy from the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. And in that prophecy, Peter repeats it and said that the Holy Spirit was poured out on who? Young and old. Male and female, sons and daughters, which means the Holy Spirit is poured out equally on male and female, not just on male, and somehow women get a junior Holy Spirit version. That's not how it reads in the Bible. There's this equality that's important for us to understand. And it's very significant for where we are as a church. We are a part of what's called the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. If you're not aware of that, we are a four square church. And our church was founded by a woman. A very significant, but just like every other person throughout human history, a very broken woman. Which, by the way, if you have this false notion that God only uses uh, perfect people, read the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) The only perfect person that has ever walked the face of the earth is Jesus himself. But every other person is flawed because people say, well, because Amy had a lot of flaws. She did, but God used her dynamically. She never had this idea to start a movement. She just started a church that actually became a movement. And it's a little disingenuous for us to somehow throw out the baby of the bathwater and say, oh, women can't do this. Well, wait, 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 wait. Our history, which now includes over the last 80 to 90 years, the four-square gospel has been preached, and it is currently through missionary work and through national churches in about 150 countries. Millions of people have come to know Jesus over the past 80 or 90 years through four-square churches. So you're telling me somehow that that's God just... He had to bypass work around Amy, or maybe he actually did work through her. I'm convinced he worked through her. And that's important for us to understand. So there's some textual evidence that we have to come to grips with. Again, this is not something to part ways over to separate. There are differences of opinion. But these are the things that I know I've come to a conclusion, and I know there are others who are much more uh, intelligent than I am that have come to similar conclusions. So I want to look at the historical context. This is extremely important. One of the things that we forget, when you open your Bible, and that's why it's important for you to read the Bible, it's also important for you to study the Bible. And today, we have more resources than ever to actually study the Bible. Because the Bible was written in a certain time period, in a certain language, with certain historical context. And when you and I read the Bible, we will take words out of it, and we will give those words our meaning. Now, sometimes they translate straight across, but other times they mean something completely different because when they were spoken 2,000 years ago, they had a different connotation than what they do today. So it's important that we have to ask the question, when you interpret one verse or one word, why was this verse there? What was it addressing? What was happening around that time that would cause the writer to say these things? So three kind of really uh, controversial passages, ones that people tend to go to, to to justify that women cannot teach or preach or have authority in the church. First one is this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 16. I won't have you go there. There's a lot there. But let me give you kind of the, the, the overview. So in this particular context, Paul is addressing a cultural and historical issue at this time, and that is when people came to public gatherings, women especially, women had to wear head coverings. And that head covering was a sign of authority in their life, ultimately, because it actually says that God is the authority of man or is the head of man, man is the head of the woman. And in that day, women would come into a gathering and they would wear that, and there was a reason for that, because culturally back in that time, the kind of the the glory of a woman or the beauty of a woman was seen in her hair. And her hair was obviously because women had longer hair than men for the most part. In fact, if men tried to make their hair look like women, that was something that was not acceptable. And so in the context of a church, to have a covering for that because, and this is part of the reason there was a covering, so that the covering of authority over their life would, would remind men that you're not supposed to lust after a woman's hair or any other part of her body for that matter. And so is this reminder to make sure that, hey, women are women, men are whim, men, women, or excuse me, men are men, women are women. But in that, because of that, there, there's this covering. Now, this is significant. Why? Because you and I, anybody have head coverings today? Did you see the little head covering box, ladies, when you came in, that you better put that on your head? No, because that's a cultural thing that we don't do anymore. In fact, in that passage, people will use the passage to justify. See, God says that the man is head over the woman, therefore the woman does not have the role that men have in the church. But if you keep on reading the passage, it actually says that man is from woman and woman is from man. Man may be the head, but man man is born of woman. So woman came out of man. You remember the original creation story? Eve came out of Adam. But where do men come from there on out? They come through being birthed from a woman. So there's this equality built even in that passage that Paul talks about. Other people will say the word head actually can be translated not head, but source. That God is the source of man and man is the source of woman. And then you get down further in the passage. Again, there's the equality. Why? Because Eve came out of Adam, but all men from that point come out of a woman. And so because of that, the historical context, we no longer have head coverings because that was a cultural thing. So to use this passage dealing with one historical issue from 2,000 years ago to justify that women should not have the ability to do what men do in the church, I don't think you can do that. That's a stretch. But again, this is my interpretation, my understanding. Second thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 to 35, the concept of silence. Verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Anybody heard this passage before? I've heard guys use this as a weapon against women. By the way, a guy came out of first service and he said, I, I learned something today. I learned that I need to shut up and let my wife speak. And I'm like, yeah, you listened well, didn't you? And she was the one that helped him to see that. But what is, what is Paul talking about here? Why in the world would Paul tell, say it's actually shameful for a woman to speak in this context? Well, we know that he's not somehow eliminating all time for women to speak at all because back in, in 1 Corinthians 15, it actually says women were prophesying. That means they were speaking publicly in a church. But what he's saying is really important because 2,000 years ago, culture was very different than it is today. Women 2,000 years ago, first century Palestine, did not have access to education. They didn't. They were the most uneducated group of people in the culture. And therefore, in that context, when people would speak publicly, even in the synagogues or when people would gather together, this was an acceptable practice that when somebody's speaking publicly, that those who were educated or wise among them had the right to question or to debate or to talk back to them in public. Which, by the way, we don't have that rule here. If you talk up, the ushers will escort you out. I'm kidding. So, <laughs> but that was the context that Paul's writing to. So he says, listen, because women do not have access to education, it is actually shameful for them to open their mouths in a public setting because they're going to make a fool of themselves. They're not gonna say the right thing. So what should they do? They should quietly learn from their husbands at home who have been educated so they can learn. Now, in this day and age, do women have access to education? Yes. I know a lot of women that are a lot smarter than me. I'm in a master's program right now, and most of the women in my cohort that I'm walking through, they are smarter than me. And I thank God that they're my cohort and they have access to education because I'm learning tons from them. But so what Paul is saying is very smart. If somebody doesn't have access to education, they don't know what to do. They are not going to publicly debate or question because they shouldn't, because they don't know what they're talking about. That's common sense. But what if women did have access to education? Do you think they might have something to say? Yeah, today, women have access to education. They're not uneducated like they were 2,000 years ago. And because of that, things have changed. And so contextually, in in this historical context, I don't think you can necessarily apply that to today because it's not the same context it was there. And then the final passage and this is probably the most difficult one that we struggle with that people usually will go to to justify that women should not teach or hold authority over men. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11 through 15. Paul says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness and I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Anybody heard that passage before? Yeah, and I know there's a little discomfort because some of you are like, I'm not buying it. I'm not selling anything, by the way. I'm just giving you my conclusions from looking at the whole of Scripture and understanding the context of what's there. So what's going on? Why is Paul saying women should not speak and not teach and not have authority over men? Again, remember... Women are completely uneducated in that culture. No access to education. Where men had access to the rabbis and the Jewish educational system, and so they actually had all the information they need. Women had nothing. On top of that, Paul is writing to Timothy. You recall who Timothy is. Timothy is actually the pastor at the church of Ephesus. And at that time in Ephesus, there were false teachers all over the place, and there were cults that were forming. And these false teachers were smart They dare not take on a man who's educated in his faith and knows how to combat and debate. So what do you think they were doing? They were going after the women. They knew the women were impressionable and the women had no education. So if they went after the women with some great new teaching, the women were more apt to embrace it than the men were. So they went after women. So what do you think happens? Those women who get the false teaching come into the church and now they want to speak about this new thing that they've learned and the very thing they're speaking actually is deception. So Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Now, that's important because even when Paul says that the the, the woman was deceived. Remember, Adam's not deceived. The woman is deceived, and she becomes a transgressor. So let's unpack that a little bit because some people say, well, women should never speak because they're deceived. Remember, it was Eve that ate the fruit, not Adam. Wait a second. Context tells us that Adam was present as much as Eve. He just was standing passively by doing nothing to help out his wife in a very difficult situation. So Adam has to take as much responsibility as Eve. The second thing, if you carry that passage to say that all women are deceived, then why do, please, no offense, please no offense on any churches that do this, but churches that hold to that women can't teach will allow women to teach other women and allow women to teach children. If they are deceived by nature, then why in the world would you allow them to teach deception to women and children? You shouldn't do that, because I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think he's saying in this context, women are deceived. Because they are uneducated and they are susceptible to the impressions of false teachers. So therefore, they should remain quiet and learn from their husbands and not have authority or teach over a man. Why? Because they don't know yet. That makes complete to me contextual and historical context. When you apply it to today, it doesn't hold water. Why? Because there are very educated women that teach far better than I do. And it would be a sin to hold that back from the church of Jesus today. It's so important for us, for us to understand this. So with that understanding, there's, there's one, third, one last thing that I want to say of the three things about our women e- and men equal in the church, and that is this, the nature of God tells us so. So back to the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 1. Listen how God created humanity. It says in verse 27 in Genesis 1, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them. So how did he create? Humanity. Male and female, he created them. This is powerful because what what is being stated here is that the image of God is only reflected through male and female, not male and female. Do you catch that? They're equal. This is the nature of God. That's the beauty of what marriage is, is is described actually here and in chapter 2 of Genesis Marriage is such a powerful statement. Why? Because when a male and a female come together, they reflect the image of God uniquely as individuals and then collectively in marriage. But they don't come in as one, one, is, the, one is better and one is the second-class citizen, which is some of the way that we view women, guys. And that's not, that's not the way it was created. In fact, you get to the New Testament when it comes to the most basic thing, which is our salvation and God's grace. There is equality across the board. Listen to this. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 to 28. Paul writes this. He says, So then, the law was our guardian guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that is not taking away the uniqueness of ethnicity and gender, but what it's saying is that under Jesus, there is no second-class citizenship. This is really important, because we've just been going through the book of Acts, and it's important. Ethnicity is mentioned in Galatians here, and a lot of what we've been walking through in the book of Acts is that the gospel had to break outside of the Jews to the Gentiles, and that was a huge leap for people. Wait a second. You mean God loves more than the Jew? God loves the Samaritan, God loves the Gentile, God loves the Roman, God loves the Greek, God loves all those people. Yes. And if there's no, there's no, uh, there's, there's, what's the word I'm looking for? Excuse me. There's no favoritism that God plays with gender or ethnicity. It's both across the board. It isn't that God says, okay, all gen, all, all, diversity, all, all ethnicities are welcome. But you know, guys are more welcome than women. It's not, that's not what he's saying. There's equality. And this is important for us. Otherwise, we have to look at the way that we present the gospel and we have to present it to men first and hope that women catch up at home. But that's not the way that it seems to be indicated in Scripture. So how do we, how do we move forward on this? And there's not going to be information on this up on the screen because I, I want you just to kind of walk through because I know, again, this is not something to divide over, but how do we embrace equality in the church? How do we walk this out? How do we live this? Again, I'm not here trying to sell you on something or trying to convince you of something but I am hoping that you will consider that maybe the scriptures have more to say about this than you would actually think they do. So let me just for a moment, few moments, talk to women. Let me, first of all, I wanted to make this statement to you. I want to apologize on behalf of this church or any church that you have been a part of in your past that has made you feel second class because you're female. That's not biblical. That's not right. And I have watched too many women who have been injured by men or have been held down by men, and I've watched as their giftedness gets lost to the church because of their gender. And so please forgive Antioch or forgive any man that you know that has done this to you or any church that you've been a part of because I don't believe that's the way God intended it for to be in the church. So the second thing, ladies, is a little bit more difficult. You accept the forgiveness, at least I, my forgiveness, please forgive our church. But here's the hard part in accepting the forgiveness, you have to extend it as well. And that's hard. Because some of you have been wounded by men in such a way, not only in the church, but in relationships and things, and so you still have a wound in you that is unhealed. And today, Jesus wants to heal that. But it comes through you extending forgiveness to those men who have wronged you doesn't justify what they've done, but it means that you're no longer going to hold it against them. Why? Because what happens when you don't forgive is you become bitter. And when you become bitter, your driving force is no longer reconciliation. You're trying to prove a point. And sadly, I've seen women who've been injured in the church, and they get into a context where they're allowed to preach and teach, and their life becomes not about being the person God's gifted them It's about being a woman that's going to shove it in every guy's face. And that doesn't work because you're missing the point. You're actually making the point for every guy who's ever, viol- ever violated you. Why? Because you're having to make it about gender again. It's not about gender. And then the, f- the third thing, ladies, is this, and this is two ways for guys, is that work towards building trust again. Some of you are not doing what you feel like you're called to do in the church because you're afraid. Because you're afraid if you kind of stepped into something or you talk to me or you talk to any other leader, you're like, well, I'm a woman, I'm not allowed to do that. Not in this church. It's not, it's not in this church. There's openings. There's, there is no ceiling anymore. There is no door. There is no wall to keep you away from what God's called you to be. Men, I'll try to be nice. <laughs> I want you to know that I came out of Bible college, trained in our four square movement, and I still kind of behind the scenes did not buy that women could do what men could do in the church. I had to sign off on something I had to yeah I, I got all the arguments but I didn't buy it and, but over a number of years as I kept getting confronted with very gifted women and I may, I would scratch my head and said what in the world you're not supposed to be doing that and then I kept going back to the scriptures and then I started reading books and I started looking things and started realizing maybe I had it wrong. Maybe I need to look more back at the way I interpret all of Scripture, which, by the way, that one book about men and women in, ministry, in the church by Sarah Sumner, she does a great job of saying that we are inconsistent in the way we interpret Scripture according to our biases, which means we go to a passage with our bias and we interpret differently than we interpret something else, which you can't do that because then you're inconsistent the way you understand the Bible. So, But for guys, this is the first thing that we have to do. We have to repent of our chauvinism. And I'm telling you, this is sad in our day, in this day and age. The church has been a hotbed for chauvinism. We have somehow biblical justification for treat, to treat women less than. And that's not Jesus' intention. In fact, if you struggle with this, just read through the Gospels. Watch how Jesus treated women. Women were just, they were so victimized in first century, but Jesus' encounters with women speaks volumes about the way he cares for women and values them equal to men. And some men, you need to read how Jesus treats the woman caught in adultery, treats the woman at the well, treats Mary Magdalene who had a questionable reputation and was demon-possessed, treats his own mother. Look at the way Jesus treated women. That's the role model that we have. And for some, you need to repent for the fact that you've been chauvinistic towards women and you've kept them down. You've made cutting comments you positioned things maybe it's in your work environment maybe it's in the church whatever it is but you've positioned yourself in such a way that you make sure that you stay in charge and don't let a woman a woman and God's saying today it's time for you to repent because whether intentionally or unintentionally you have wounded women second thing guys see women as equal not second class See him as equal. Now listen, there are different physical realities for male and female. I get that. I'm not talking about women playing at the same level in sports that guys do. Someday it might happen. In fact, right, right now there's a woman who might actually possibly make the NFL and play football with guys. Crazy. But we know that there are physical differences between men and women, but there are not differences between men and women in the church because they're equally valued. So see women as equals, not as a second-class citizen. And then, guys, a third thing, pray for God to reveal the truth to you. I strongly encourage you, listen, no matter which side that you land on, but especially if you land on the side where you've held to, no way. Women can't do what men do. I challenge you to go back to the Scriptures, to study, to read, and most importantly, in humility, submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Now, I'm not saying that that means that my side is truth. I know I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I will stand before Jesus someday and I will ask for forgiveness that I got this one wrong. But from what I see in the scriptures, I've got a pretty good good evidence to support that I believe that women can do what men do in the church. But it's important for us to understand that we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit in humility to say, God, what am I missing this? Not just with this topic, but any issue that we struggle with. Anything that we're biased about, we have to take that before the Lord. So what does ministry look like at Antioch in terms of women and men being equal? Three things. Ministry positions and leadership should never be determined by gender, but by gifting, integrity, and competency. Who is the best person for the job, man or woman? This is the way we function as a church. So a couple weeks ago, anybody remember who preached? Wasn't me. It was Lauren Thornycroft, And I got more feedback from her message than I get from my own, and it was positive. This is important. Anybody remember Megan Forbes? She was the youth pastor before Lauren. So let me just tell you the way that we function as a church. This is really important. I don't want the best man for the job. I want the best person for the job. Because if I say I want the best man, I might miss the best person, and that means we suffer as the body of Christ. So, for example, let me just go back and kind of give you a little insight into our hiring practices. So when we had an opening for a children's director, we were looking for candidates, and we were looking at men and women. And I had contact with some guys and some gals, and Lauren, when she sat down for her interview, there was no question Lauren was the one. And we never, I didn't look at gender. I'm like, okay, we need to look for a woman because women oversee children. That's not our conclusion. Who's the best person for the job? Lauren was. Same thing with Megan. When we had a youth pastor position that was open, we looked, and in fact, I interviewed five people. Four of them were guys, and one was female. And if you would have sat through with me me through all the interviews, you would have come to the same conclusion. If you would have not let gender bias your opinion, you would have said, Megan, by far, is the best candidate for this position. That's why we hired her. Now, I'm not trying to expose anything, but Chris Diaz, who's our new worship leader, I I interviewed women and men in the process of of who was going to lead our church and worship in the next season of life. When I sat down with Chris and I processed through, there was no question in my mind, Chris is the best person for the job. He happened to be a guy. Does that make sense? Do you see? Gender did not come into play whatsoever because the great tragedy of the church is that we're missing out on the gifts that God's given us because we're stuck in a male-only culture. And God said there's gifts to the church that include women, and their gifting as well. So we have to understand that, that all men and women have equal access, and what we judge on is not gender, but gifting and competency and integrity. That's what you judge somebody on in terms of their qualifications. Second thing, God did not call us to make disciples and then somehow sideline half of the workforce. Seriously, if men and women are created equal, why in the world would God say, go make disciples of all nations? And then say, yeah, but guys, you do it because you're the only ones that can preach. I'm going to leave women on the sidelines. Why would he do that? If you read what we call the Great Commission lately, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Is that slightly difficult? Yes, because we haven't done it yet. We haven't reached all ethnic groups and all languages and all people groups around the world. Why? Because there's people who are opposed to the gospel throughout the world, and it's hard to get the gospel into certain areas. But you know what's even harder than that? Is the next part of the Great Commission. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Oh, that's easy, right? <laughs> Anybody have kids? Ever, ever struggle to get your kid to obey? Think about that. So God calls His church to reach all people and, and call them to an obedient life and following Jesus and says, Ah, oh, by the way, guys, you can do that. I don't know about you, I want an army with women in it. I do. Because I've discovered something about the uniqueness of men and women, even in the way that they lead. Now you can't, there isn't we're not gonna stereotype the way a man leads and the way a woman leads, but I'll tell you, guys, women have an advantage over us. They do. For the most part, women can multitask, and guys can't. Seriously. That's what I'm seeing. You know what? Listen, in my cohort, in my master's program, there's a couple a couple of the ladies are moms and they work. And I read their their posts, and I read and engage with them, and I'm like, how in the world are they doing this? I mean, I'm struggling, and I don't have any, we don't have, our kids are growing, we don't have any foster babies right now, and they're working, they got four kids, and they're doing a master's program, and they're smoking me. I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm reading like, this is amazing. There's one gal in our cohort. I'm like, she's gonna pastor someday, because I would sit in her teaching, because she knows her stuff. Because she has this ability to do like three things at once. Guys, ever struggle to do that? Yeah, guys, nod your head, because most of us do. But women, they have this ability. And so, in fact, the way a woman would lead a church may actually look different than a man if that's her capacity and that's her ability. But there may be women who are like men in that they they can't multitask. And there are some guys who can multitask. But for the most part, you see that that uniqueness in the way God has designed us. So the last thing is this. Men and women, seek to live out your calling to the fullest uh, to realize that we all need each other. We all need each other. And so we are the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not men. The body of Christ is male and female. It's all of us together. Otherwise, we're missing body parts, and it gets pretty ugly pretty fast because we're missing half of our body parts. You can't really function very well as a body unless you have all the body parts together. So how I want to close with this today, I want to close and I'm going to pray in just a moment. I know this is difficult for some, and I know that you're, some of you may, you may think, wow, you've got a whole list of things of ammunition that you want to come debate me on. I'm not interested in, in debating I am interested in you seeking out the truth for yourself because we can argue all day long about this, and I'm not going to argue about this one, but you come to your conclusion, but here's the key. Do not divide over this issue. Don't. Because that will destroy the body of Christ. In our city, we have lots of churches that hold to the opposite view that we have. They don't believe that women can teach or preach, but women can teach Sunday school and teach other women. I don't have any ill feelings from them. Some of my best friends in the city pastor churches that have that belief, but I know that I'm not going to divide over that. Why? Because this has nothing to do with my salvation. I'm not going to stand before Jesus someday, and the, the the one litmus test that we have is, well, how did you fall on women in ministry? He's not going to ask that question. In fact, this last Thursday, Lauren hosts, periodically hosts a youth pastors prayer gathering, and there were youth pastors representing, I think, five or six churches that were here in our building, and some of the youth pastors were women, and some of the youth pastors were men, and beautiful thing. They all got together in a room and they prayed for the youth in our city regardless of where they come theologically on that particular issue. I've watched really close friends of mine who are are in the city who they do differ on this but they have not let it eliminate them and somehow isolate them from churches that do believe women can do what men do. That's the stance that we should take. Why? Because we don't have time to divide. There's too much at stake for us to argue over these things. So go back to the scriptures in humility. Read books Ask God, God, where should I land on this one? And by the way, one of the things I will challenge you to do is this, on a real practical step, and then I'm going to pray. I've had so many people come to me when we've had a female preach in our services, and they'll say this, she's not supposed to be doing that. We actually had people get up and walk out when Megan preached one Sunday. Literally right when she's opened her mouth, they left. Wrong move, because you're making a statement. I reject you based on the fact of your gender. Here's what the problem is. They didn't spend the next 40 minutes listening to what Megan had to say. And Megan took the scriptures and as good as any guy could, took a passage and got to the heart of it and interpreted it correctly and had great application that could have changed that person's life, but they left too soon. So here's my challenge. Before you write somebody off because of their gender, listen to what they have to say and then make your judgment because you're missing out on a whole lot of good teaching that you might need to hear. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have created humanity, male and female. And Lord, I know that there are different unique physical characteristics and even personality characteristics and even roles, Lord, within marriage where there are strengths, Lord, that both men and women bring to relationships. But Lord, I know in the church and the tasks that you've given to us of, of fulfilling your love for the world and making disciples, Jesus, that follow you, that you value all of us equally and you gift us equally. So Lord, I pray today... I pray for women first, Lord, that if there are women here who have been injured because of what men have said or what men have done, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the capacity to begin to heal today, that you would give them the strength to extend forgiveness, and they would be able to find healing, and in that, Lord, they would find a pathway forward into becoming all that you have gifted and created them and equipped them to be. And Lord, for men, Lord, would you help us to see clearly where our blind spots have been chauvinistic or painful or hurtful towards women so that we might be able to be aware of the beautiful gift that you've given in all of us, that Lord, although we're different genders, we are equal before you because you love all people the same. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.